Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. In the face of slower growth then in China and turmoil in emerging markets over the last several weeks, the regional preference of investors is becoming very clear. In the latest Bank of America Merrill Lynch fund manager survey, investors are the most bullish the United States since 2015. Chris Rupke joining us now, MUFG Union Bank Chief Financial Economist, and he joins us alongside us here in New York. Good morning to you, Chris. Good morning. Let's talk about the optimism here in America. The small business optimism survey came out in the last hour just short of a record high. Things are looking good here. Yeah, what's wrong with people? Aren't they watching what's going on in Turkey, uh, Italy? We're having some situation with uh, Italy as well, um, potentially. And uh, you just can't frighten the American public, either businesses or consumers. I think their pockets may be stuffed with uh, massive tax cuts, cash here. And people seem to be blinded. I, I mean, you know, a currency crisis to really get full blown like we had 20 years ago in the late 90s. I mean, world stock markets have to crater at the same yeah. time. But here you had last night at the close, S&P 500s up five and a half percent year to date after up like 19 percent last year. You have to wonder what what's going on. What what's going to frighten the investor public in the U.S.? Uh, we just haven't seen it yet. Maybe the the currency crisis in Turkey it's not over yet. If it did fall further, it would start to get people's attention. But so far, people are optimistic, as you say. Well, let's discuss what kind of crisis we do have on our hands. Um, there was a great FT piece recently mm. that said this has echoes more of 2013 perhaps than it did in the late 90s and emerging market yeah. crisis. Is that how you would frame this as well, thinking of this as a little bit of a taper tantrum and various symptoms popping up around the world of the Federal Reserve stepping back from the era of easy money? Well, the, the danger, I guess, for Turkey is can the uh, entities that borrowed in dollars ever pay it back? So at the moment, if the currency six and a half uh, lira to the dollar, it, it's not great. They're down 40% on the year. But what if it really melts down? I went back and looked at the uh, before the global financial markets crisis in 98. Uh, part of the reason for that, especially the Fed thought part of the reason for it was uh, Russian's currency plummeted. So it went from like quickly, like from six to the dollar to 20 yeah. to the dollar. So that's like a wipeout. You know, you don't have to pay back $600,000. You have to pay back $2 million now. So, I mean, we haven't gone far enough yet. We're about six and a half to the dollar on the lira right now. I mean, God forbid, I don't want to speculate. But, I mean, if, if there was a total wipeout melted down to 20 to the dollar, that would be a serious situation that would, uh, you know, affect other emerging markets, I think. Within this, and I want to go, uh, folks, I featured it this morning, Ambrose Evans Pritchard in The Telegraph, I thought wrote a beautiful memory of Janet Yellen frankly, capitulating to international markets. Review that with us. What did Chair Yellen do, and why may we see this again from Chairman Powell? Yeah, well, I guess the situation back then is, I mean, we can always, the market can always become afraid of world the world economic growth outlook 
But we just got an update on the world growth outlook from the IMF, and they're maintaining no world growth is going to continue at 3.9% the next couple of years. So there's no problem yet. Back then, I guess it was in 2016, early 2016, after the China devaluation the prior summer, uh, the concern was really a lot what happened to world economic growth? What's going on in China? Now, we're just in the early discovery phase there. I mean, look at China's currency, the way it's gone recently. Yeah. Maybe we're just three, four months away from the world trembling at you know their fears over the world economic outlook. At the moment, nobody's afraid of the world economic outlook. But especially for the Federal Reserve. I mean, first and foremost, there was a real question being asked of Chair Yen at the time as to whether she was the chairwoman of the Federal Reserve or the chair of the Global Central Bank. (laughs) Fed Chair Jay Powell has been pretty clear in a speech back in May in Zurich. He said that he thinks, basically, that people overstate the Federal Reserve's impact on global financial conditions. He's made it pretty clear where he stands. That was only several months ago. Do you you agree with what John just said there? Because, John, that's the heart of the matter. It's the absolute heart of the matter. Maybe he can't say that we're affecting the world economic outlook. Or, or finance. I mean, what if he, what if he did agree? You know, that might set off more. Oh no, no, I understand he can't message it. But to John's good point, walk us through this. I mean, if the U.S. sets a higher interest rate, and you have to factor in a real rate for what, John? Columbia? I have very little sympathy with emerging markets right now. This has yeah. been telegraphed so much by the Agreed. Federal Reserve. Yeah, that's I fair. would also say the big difference between now and, say, early 2016, the downside risk to inflation was greater for the Federal Reserve and for the ECB, much more so for the European Central Bank. Right now, the Federal Reserve capacity to pull back from tightening when you now have real upside risk to the inflation target, I'd say we're in a completely different world, aren't we, Chris? I think they kind of, yeah, I mean, just the way you talk about tightening tightening and the world thinks to say not every rate hike should be considered a tightening i think the fed kind of lost the ball in terms of trying to describe what they're doing here all they're doing is removing the stimulus that they had they should emphasize that we're we're taking our foot off the gas we're not putting on the brake i mean there there's a real problem uh, the you know world currency markets think the Fed's putting on the brakes here with higher rates, but what they're really doing is just we're moving rates up to normal. It, it, it shouldn't yeah. be that bad. Rates but, are only two percent in the but US. But that begs the question, Chris. Yeah. If we haven't even gone through neutral yet, yeah. If the Fed funds rate is barely in real rate territory, right? Then what on earth does it mean when it is? I know. I mean, people are panicking now. What's going to happen when rates go to even uh, Chicago? Chicago Fed President Evans, although he said in 2020, we might move rates up above neutral levels, which might be, I don't know, three and a quarter percent in his view. Uh, but that that's a different story. That's about a year away from now. But yeah, I am a little concerned that the market's already, that the world's already trembling, that the Fed's going to pull the rug out from under them and, and raise rates. I mean, it's only 2%. Again, Chris, one final question, if we could. You've been wonderful to be with us uh, today. You mentioned earlier we're not going back to the terminal values of higher interest rate. What is your one-year, 10-year call? I mean, if it's higher yields, I don't have a handle on what higher is higher. Yeah, I don't want to. The the caution shown on many of the Fed members and, and Fed Chair Powell himself 
I, I, I don't feel comfortable in forecasting a 10-year yield going out sure. that far beyond where we think the Fed funds rate is going to end up. So I, I'm a little, you know, they're probably going to push rates to, what are they saying, 3.5% now in 2020. They'll tell us where it's going to be in 2021 on September 26. I don't feel like right. forecasting a 10-year yield higher than where the Fed thinks they're going to push the Fed funds rate. I don't even trust the Fed to push the funds rate to three and a half. Don't forget what Powell said a few months ago. He said, oh, that dot way out way out there in 2020, <laughs> three and a half percent. Forget about well, it. We true. can't see that far in the future. Oh. Well, he's not an economist. Well, if, if they can't see that far in that's the future, why they can't it, see. It, it begs the question why on earth it's in the summary of economic projections anyway. Chris Ruck, yeah. it's yeah. great to catch up with you. <clears throat> MUFG, Union Bank Chief Financial Economist. news dissemination john and then there you and i were at nine zero zero one or whatever like it was 12 seconds after the hour who ever heard of a blog release is that explain because <laughs> i was confused at radio why, yesterday why you right at nine o'clock what explain did they do did mr musk do a blog release yeah i don't know why you're asking me to explain because you're the because, expert on this because to be honest with you tom there is no explanation for what is going on with this company over the last couple of months. I thought the one quote that stood out for me in the blog post was the following about what he meant by funding secured and how much money Tesla would need to go private. I want to read out the following to you. Quote, therefore reports that more than $70 billion would be needed to take Tesla private dramatically overstate the actual capital raise needed. The 420 buyout price would only be used for Tesla shareholders who do not remain with our company if it is private, my best estimate right now is that approximately two thirds of shares owned by all current investors would roll over into a private Tesla. Okay, let's bring in. I have no let's, idea. Let's, what let's, you let's, just let's, said. let's bring in possibly one of the most bearish analysts on the street, Gordon Johnson, Vertical Group analyst, and he joins us on the phone. Gordon, it's always great to get your insight on this company. What does that quote mean? I don't know exactly what that quote means, but what we're seeing here is unprecedented. Last night, we got a tweet, or was I don't know if it was a tweet or a blog post from Elon Musk, that they're, um, they've engaged Silver Lake and Goldman Sachs. Immediately last night, following that, uh, that tweet or blog post, Silver Lake came out and denied that they're advising them in official capacity. And if Goldman Sachs had been engaged, their research department would have to have dropped coverage, and they haven't done that. Um, so this is becoming quite... Uh, quite odd. Um, uh, I, I don't know the other word to use uh, to describe it. So, Gordon, how much daylight right now is there between what the board is saying and what Elon Musk, the CEO, is saying? You know, I, I don't know, because let me take you through a history, right? So when they not, uh, launched the Gigafactory a few years back, Elon Musk predicted that power wall demand um, was, quote, off the hook, and they'd have a billion in, they had a billion in sales visibility. As of 2018, power walls all but non-existent. When they acquired SolarCity, um, they said that the company was strong, and they had to acquire them. We believe we covered SolarCity. The company was insolvent and is currently in liquidation. The 26 capital raise, autopilot, they said autopilot death wouldn't harm them. At the time, Tesla knew about an autopilot death. 
2017 bond uh, offering. They said 10,000 Model 3s per week by December 2017. You have 11 insiders testifying that must knew uh, 5,000 was an absolute limit. And, 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 and that, that goes on and on. We have the Silver Lake um, and, and other things, right? They said they didn't need a capital raise. Cap, capital raise. The FOIA confirmed that there's two ongoing, quote, enforcement proceedings. So it seems like increasingly yeah. the things that he's saying are just you can't really uh, believe them. Okay, I, you know, I know you're, you've had a cautious few here, but we've got such respect for Vertical Group and, you know, what you've done with General Electric and the, and the, and the others. Do you trust their goodwill or bad will on their balance sheet? Uh no, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I don't. Um, you know, the balance sheet is definitely an area of concern for us. I mean, they had they had around $230 million available to draw on their credit facility at the end of Q2, um, uh, and they ended with $2.2 billion in unrestricted cash, but that's offset by 942 in customer deposits. And, you know, the, the balance sheet is really the area of major concern Thank for you. us. Thank you. Yeah, and with respect to the and, – and, and I, I think that's a great question because I think a lot of the bulls are focused purely on this. We believe in Musk, and as long as the stock doesn't fall, we continue to believe in Musk. And that's just not what analysts do. We're supposed to look at numbers and do analysis, and it seems like nobody's doing that. And, um, you know, uh, this reminds me of when Lehman was close to going under, and they talked about going private. Um, and also consider when um, uh, there was an auto uh, uh, go private. I think it was um, – I forget the name, uh, but uh, a private equity fund took an auto uh, maker private at $7.4 billion, right. and they lost like $6 billion on that go private. Um, so it's just this is very odd, and it's it's shocking to well, us that you haven't seen any SEC action. You know, I don't know who's involved with Silver Lake anymore. I can't keep track of the players, but I would suggest Mr. McNamee or Mr. Hutchins have a wandering understanding of accounting and accounting veracity. Are we heading for the point where somebody sits Mr. Musk down and says? This is the way we really do things. I mean, are we at almost a point where there's going to be a new Tesla, whatever happens? We, we think so. I mean, they have $920 million in converts that mature in March of 2018. I'm sorry, 2019. They have $48 million in interest payments due this week and $82.5 million of debt due can to they Elon. Make, well, the they board. can make that payment. Come on, you can take that out of petty cash. You can delay the SpaceX launch by one week. I mean, you can say that, but I mean, they effectively drew down, they nearly fully drew down their credit facility, um, you know, in Q2. No one's talking okay, about that. Okay, thank you. I didn't um, know that. Was, <laughs> there was there was uh, still a big cash burn, $740 million of free cash flow burn, despite the fact that they fired a bunch of people and have significantly cut back CapEx and investment. Um, and demand literally looks like it's collapsing for the Model 3. I mean, if you look at Europe, Norway, which is their biggest European market, in July had the weakest sales ever um, uh, since the beginning. Um, and sales in pretty much every single European market outside yeah. of uh, uh, one other is, is, is falling. And I think that's due to competition. So I, I think they're facing real problems, so big Gordon, problems. It, it raises the question, why is the stock at 356? I mean, we opened last Tuesday when we got that tweet. We opened up that morning at 343, 344. We're north of that in the face of all of this. Why? 
Think about it. Elon Musk, I, I was in Italy and you had me on your show and I appreciate it. A couple it. of times. Well, I thanks for coming on, Gordon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Think about this. I mean, the guy said last week, funding secured, and then went on to say all we need is a shareholder vote, which implies that the board has approved everything, paperwork has been signed, lawyers have been hired. We find out that was completely false and nothing happened. Look, I think the issue is you have a cult-like following for this stock and they believe anything Musk says, even if he's lying. Um, and I shouldn't say lying, but maybe I should say mistruths. Um, and I think that's why the stock's where it's at. But I think the reason why the shorts remain emboldened, and so do we, is because at some point they run out of money. And real competition is coming. And we're going to put out real analysis and continue to do real work to show you guys what's happening in Europe, what's happening in the U.S., why it looks like uh, demand in the U.S. also has, has collapsed. The pictures of the drones that are flying over the facilities that have, are storing, it looks like hundreds or thousands of Tesla cars, despite the fact that they say they have this huge backlog. Okay. All of these things, you know, th th suggest that things are quite bad for them. What's your timeline to reality? Is it like by Friday? No, I, that, that's a good question, but it's a hard one to answer. I think the timeline to reality is the cars that are hitting the European market and causing first half 18 Tesla sales to fall year over year, hit the U.S. next year. I think by fourth quarter or first fourth quarter of 18 or first quarter of 19, I think reality hits a lot of the long holders. And I think that what Musk is trying to do is go private before yeah. that happens. I don't think that's possible. And, 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 you know, we'll show analysis why. Um, uh, but I think Reality hits a okay. one Great briefing, Gordon Johnson. Thank you so much. Vertical Group, uh, cautious to say the least, as you could hear. That's that's one way of putting it, Tom. Yes, cautious <laughs> is the way. I'm, I'm trying to, you know, be cautious in my caution. Jim Walker is an active god in Asia. He has provided economic analysis across all of Asia for years. He was legendary at CSLA and now runs Asianomics. And with him is Sharmila Whalen, who is quite acute on the linkage of data into the back and forth between nations. And we're thrilled that Sharmila can join us right now. Sharmila, you've got a beautiful couple pages on something we ignore, which is Japan China relationships. Has that changed as much as U.S.-China relations? It hasn't changed as much as uh, China-U.S. relations, obviously. I mean, you know, the trade war is right in our face in the news every day. But the Japan-China relationship is changing, and it's it's changing on at the margin. But a couple of interesting things. First is, if you look at Japanese exports for the last 18 months, especially the last 12 months, Japanese exports to the U.S. have been slowing, and Japanese exports to China are surging. Right, and given you know, you know, in the past that the Chinese have you know the boycotting yeah. of Japanese goods, etc. But Japanese exports to China are surging. The other interesting thing is, I think in you know in August, the two foreign ministers of the two countries meeting in Singapore on the sidelines of the ASEAN uh, summit, and both of them agreeing to cooperate, and the Chinese being very keen to bring in Japanese companies into one belt, one road. And you know, if the Nikkei is to be believed, the, uh, China, the China senior leadership right now is putting together a document that will redefine diplomatic relationships between China and Japan. But I think <clears throat> it's, you know, my view right. is and it's a, there's a confluence of vested interests here. 
I, from both that, sides. With, well, exactly. It's right where I wanted to go. Within that vested interest is the idea of a collegial mercantilism. Are they both comfortable with President Trump's neo-mercantilist view? I don't think either of them are um, comfortable at all. I mean, I think China was kind of expecting it, you know, that, that you know, the view in the U.S. that the China um, R&B is manipulated, that the trade deficit vis-a-vis -vis China is too big. You know, that's been an ongoing thing for years. Uh, I think what where China has been taken by surprise is how aggressively uh, President Trump has uh, gone ahead with imposing, ta you know, tariffs on China imports, mm -hmm. and there's no stopping there either. Um, you know, it's not, it doesn't look like just purely a negotiating tool. Uh, I think, but the bigger surprise, I think, is for Japan. You know, uh, you know, I think Japan, like Korea, is finding out, um, unfortunately, that the U.S. isn't quite the reliable trade trading partner right. or ally that it has yeah. been historically. Shamila, thank you so much. On breaking news, we've got to run, but Shamila Whalen uh, with us with Jim Walker's Asianomics. I'm thrilled she could join us. Joe Feldman with us with Telsey Advisory Group. We are thrilled he's with us. Joe, you published this morning. Can you make some news on Bloomberg surveillance and suggest? Will you raise your target price as an outperform, or do we need to wait for a Telsey sign-off on that? <laughs> we need to wait for a Telsey sign-off on that. But I will say that I, my current price target is $217, yeah. which is nicely above uh, where the stock is currently trading. So, And, and it looks like it's going to open up today a little bit, a couple of percent. Uh, very good results right. this morning. What is a distinguishing feature within the press release this morning? I think the uh, the transactions count being up three uh, percent. That it was negative last quarter for the first time in years, and so to rebound back and see that positive transaction number is very good because that's really what drives right. the business. What he's just yeah. done there is why is Joe Feld, Feldman and why he works with Dana Telsey. Revenue PIM is a partial differential of units and price. And everybody in the media is price specific, and there's Joe Feldman looking at the units, units. moving. The actual, the yeah. actual units. Joe, is there a split that is worth noting when it comes to the Home Depot between the wholesale, the professional customer, and the home sort of do-it-yourself customer? Well, the pro customer has been running, uh, driving better sales growth for Home Depot for quite some time now. And I would expect when we hear the conference call that they're going to say the same. Uh, it was likely a driver of ticket because the pro customer does spend a little more. Forty percent of Home Depot sales come from pro customers. So that's a big driver of, of this business. Are they also seeing the increase in the cost of wood and wood products and other products that are imported into the United States? I suspect we will hear a little bit about some of the inflation that's happening right now and, and maybe how the tariffs are hitting them. But they made it very clear to me in the past that they directly import 6% of their goods and only around 24% of their broader-based goods come from China where the, the tariffs would have an impact. But clearly there has been some pressure on lumber prices coming in from, from Canada, and we may hear a little bit of inflation on those, those categories. Do you think that Home Depot is doing enough online to thwart any potential competition from Amazon? 
You know, I will tell you that Home Depot has done a very good job online, and they have been out in the forefront of this and understanding that they need to be able to have fast fulfillment for the customer, whether it's for the pro customer or there's the DIY customer, uh, and leveraging their stores for, you know, pick up at store, ship from store. So they've actually been ahead of a lot of other retailers, and I think they, they're very well aware of that. And, you know, e-commerce makes up a well, mid- to high single-digit percent of sales now. I'm glad you bring that up. Is what What is their Amazon? I mean, everybody's got an Amazon strategy, even Joe Feldman. What is Home Depot's Amazon strategy? I think their Amazon strategy is the fact that the, the average the customer that they have when they're working on a project, they want to go into the store and touch and feel the goods. And for those that don't need to do that, they're going to be as fast as, as, as delivery as Amazon will or better. They have a broader assortment of this category. A lot of the materials that they sell are things that Amazon has a tough time yeah. shipping. So there's some differentiation there for sure. Do you know, Pim, that Ken Langone was all wound up about shovels when he was with us? Sure. You know, he had a shovel and he got bruised hands. They have 507 shovels when you search at, at Home Depot. You don't need 500 shovels, but I, I know. But in case you do, they're yeah, there. Yeah, they're there. Hey, hey, Joe, uh, if this is if this has been such a good story, why is the stock up only two two and a half percent so far this year? Why didn't people get this? You know, I I think this stock has been a champ for the past five six years, and I think there's everybody on the investment side is trying to figure out when is the end of the story. And we haven't seen it yet. Uh, I think there's always this concern that the housing market is going to slow and therefore home improvement sales at Home Depot and Lowe's will slow. We've not seen it yet. We don't think it's around the corner just yet, which is why we see the stock uh, continuing to work from here. Do you believe that Home Depot is a proxy for the health of the housing market in the United States? I think it's a proxy for the health of the consumer in the United States to the extent that, you know, two-thirds of um, all homes are owned in the U.S. Uh, tends to be that, that homeowners are the ones that can spend a little bit more, just broadly speaking, and I think it is reflective of that. Yeah. The vast majority of sales at home improvement are done by people in their homes as opposed to ones buying and selling yeah. homes. Joe, with me, I can't pound a nail straight. This is called home disimprovement. At the Keene household. we got to keep your eyes open yeah. when you hit the nail. Can we say thank you, Mr. Feldman? Thank you. With us on television and radio today. Really brilliant, really smart. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keene. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.